1: Pop. Welcome to Switched On Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And today we are joined by a very special guest. Would you mind introducing yourself?
2: It's me. Jessica Hopper. <laughs>
1: Woo! Jessica Hopper is live <laughs> in the studio. We are so thrilled to have her with us. Author, critic, and now host of the KCRW show Lost Notes.
2: It's true. I'm I'm the host and executive producer for this season as uh, one of the rotating hosts that they have, which change every season. But um, it is it is exciting. And it is also exciting to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: Thank you for joining us. So give us a brief introduction to what Lost Notes is all about.
2: So Lost Notes basically does deep dives, reported pieces, documentary, that really tries to get towards stories that we haven't heard a thousand times or new perspectives on history that we may know. And this season, I got to work really collaboratively with the other producers and the show's creator, Nick White, to field stories, but also go out to folks where I was like, you know, I know somebody's got this piece, and I was like, places that you can pitch or even land a long-form reported story about music history Mm -hmm. is almost non-existent. So, in some ways, we really had, you know, some really great producers and writers. This season, including Hanif Abdurraqib, who. Friend of the show. The <laughs> Friend of the pot. Our,
1: our Carly Ray whisper, a <laughs> <our> resident, <laughs> yeah. resident expert.
2: Um, so I got to, you know, help sort of pick what we were gonna do this season and then shape it into the stories that they became. And, and as we pulled this season together, the stories that we loved kind of had a through line to them huh. that became pretty apparent in the different ways that a lot of them were trying to connect sounds, ideas, stories, mythology of music's past and reconcile it in the present moment, which I think, given how much Me Too has sort of shaped so much how we're thinking about music in the last few years, it's not surprising to me. I think it's very much in the air to be thinking about music lineage inherited sort of history and mythology about uh, what we're listening to and what we're engaging in and what does that mean Mm. so we just had all these really great stories that most of them were pretty retrospective in nature like I think the most recent one is uh, Hanif's episode that's like a letter to Cat Power about the greatest and, (laughs) and the idea of music that can save your life and sort of puncturing this idea that people performing or issuing some sort of like really heavy work the sort of assumption that they're that they're transformed by it and they come out the other side and like you know artists can sort of be healed by that and and sort of that idea around cat power is the greatest in particular so so really what became pretty evident to us as we picked through what we felt like were the strongest stories and the strongest storytellers and things that seemed to be kind of speaking to each other is that it really was just about legacy. And so, I mean, it's a real treat for me as someone who, you know, the last couple of years mostly been working as an editor at different places. And I really, really love it in part because through both podcasts and other documentary forms you can tell stories that don't get told.
1: Yeah, and we're excited for the upcoming season. You know, this is a show that, as you said, both sort of excavates uh, maybe forgotten musical works of the past and revisits maybe more familiar works from a fresh angle. You, You brought up this idea of legacy. That's something I'm excited to tackle on our show because we tend to be very... Concerned with the now and the present and the fleeting present almost, um, so this is kind of a chance to step back and think about how maybe some of the music we're talking about today will ramify through through time. So what we're gonna do is first we'll preview actually some of the conversations uh, that that you're having on your show, and then we'll step back and think about how this might apply to the kind of work we're doing on our show, where pop <laughs> might be headed and what we might be missing. But let's kick it off with some incredible music that uh, i think was new to me i think is about to be new to charlie let's listen to the band fanny That's the live version of Charity Ball by Fanny. Can you tell us a little bit about this band, Jessica?
2: So, Fanny were a band fronted by two sisters, June and Jean Millington, and they were kind of on the California garage rock yeah. circuit in in Northern California, in particular, in The late 1960s, you know, they came up alongside Credence Hmm. and they were not like any other band that they were playing with. They were two teenage sisters in a rock band. Uh, They were, they had only been in the US for a few years. They're Filipina immigrants and they were incredible songwriters and players and, and incredible musicians at a time when there was at least to their knowledge they didn't know any other women any musicians that were like them hmm. and so they come up they come up in that particular time and space they go to LA they get signed fairly quickly and they're signed to Reprise in the early 70s so they are you know their their peers in that time and space they like really good friends with Lil' Feet and Bonnie huh. Raitt and hmm. um You know, David Bowie's like totally obsessed with them Mm. and, you know, they hang out with the Stones. I mean, they're like really, really like they are hanging in the thick of it, Mm. right? And they make a couple records for reprise and kind of towards the end of it, they're like, we're going to get you guys matching outfits, you (laughs) know, because, because all women in the band was really considered novelties, Mm. even though they were, you know, as we talk about in the piece, they were David Bowie's favorite band. I mean, he still talked about that in the 90s. Wow. And so they, around 75, 76, they do their last record and break up in fairly short order. And they're just not really remembered outside of, uh, you know, references and kind of just feminist-minded music mm-hmm. books and mm-hmm. histories. They're not really, and and when they're written into a lineage there, they're talking about sort of predating the Runaways, and you know, Kim Fowley saw Fanny and was like, came backstage and and told them, this like 74, 75, comes backstage to tell them, I'm going to do what you're doing, but I'm going to make money off of it, and then a year later, there's the Runaways. So they're like, I mean, there's so many things about this story. Um, I think I say in the piece, they were often the first and only of what they were, and they were barely out of their teens. Mm. You know, being fronted by queer women—I I mean, just absolutely pioneering in every possible way—and then they've basically been essentially written out of history. And so, when we when we go back to the to their legacy in this piece, um, and kind of talk about you know being pioneers, there's parts of it that they're like, well, you know, that's a very modern reading of how things were and we didn't even think about it hmm. at that point point. and you know asking these questions like did you ever think about getting a man in your band and they were like men wouldn't play with us like wow. there was no we were not considered a threat or a competition and so you know they talk about in the the piece about they had like a band house that was considered like a really kind of like a safe space off the Sunset Strip. And, yeah. and because it was clean and well-appointed huh. and they talk about all these things, you know, they're basically like like the non-grody Sunset Strip <laughs> band house. So people love to come over there and they would wake up and, you know, Lil Feet would be like jamming or Dave Mason would be like, you know, play. <laughs> I mean, I whatever know. you think of Dave Mason. But, um, you know, jamming in their living room, playing in their living room. Or they could be like, hey, well, show me how to do this. And because people weren't threatened by them. They could basically demand lessons or instruction oh. or whatever from, from these men who were considered to be like the, the giants of the, the era just didn't see them as any sort of competition or threat. And so that's how they learned. And as you can hear, they're an incredible band.
0: Oh, absolutely. So they had the privilege of being surrounded by these absolute stars and yet they didn't take off. And I'm curious how was their legacy forming in that era? How are they being written about? Were these people that they were surrounded by actively promoting them or because they were so unthreatening, they just didn't even consider them? It's like, you're just a bunch of groupies hanging out with us. Like what?
2: It, it really sounds like, especially when you read you know, this letter that David Bowie writes to Rolling Stone that we read in the piece, once people saw them, they were just like, holy fuck. <laughs> but... There's even some advertisements at play on the piece where everything about them is real like, you know, wink and a nod, you know. And even by the people who were behind the record at reprise, just the idea of all women in a band, it was just seen as kind of an extension of girl groups, which Mm. people thought they were a fad. Mm. People just thought it was somehow like a construction or that they weren't essentially a real band but I think for people who saw them
1: Hmm.
2: and obviously whether it was these you know predators like Kim Fowley or it was people who treated them with incredible reverence like David Bowie or bands that brought them on tour you know it was really so much of their legacy I think was shaped by people at that time, just not regarding them as real, as just novelty.
0: That sounds like even the record label responsible for them treated them as a novelty and couldn't...
2: They wanted to have them wear matching outfits and basically turn them into like a gimmick, (laughs) a gimmick band, you know? And also the other thing too is just people they were so far ahead of their time and the times were just about to start to catch up with them. Yep. 75, 76 is when you really start to see a lot of women artists charting with material that they wrote based on their own lives. Then you also see phenomena like Susie Quattro, to a lesser extent, you know, the Runaways. The runaways, obviously, bigger outside of the U.S. than they were here. Um, you know, some of these larger phenomenas are in st- and, and heart you know mm. are still two three years down the road um from when mm. fanny is ostensibly at their peak
1: mm. as you say this is incredible music let's listen to a little bit more of this track and and hear what people were responding to then and now because for me at least like listening, hearing this for the first time it's like uncovering and you're like on an archaeological dig, and you just made some—you know—you just unearthed some like ancient Roman uh, fresco in perfect <laughs> condition. And you're like, "What? How did how did no one know about this? This is incredible!" Let's fast forward to this ripping slide guitar solo a little bit further in the live version of Charity Ball. so in some ways this is like classic 70s kind of country blues rock it's we're hearing a 12-bar blues we're hearing like ferocious slide guitar and honky-tonk piano it's a lot of fun but there's also i think there is something you listen to this band you're like oh this isn't just another one of these outfits this isn't uh just they
2: had a lot of personality musically and also uh, you know Charity Ball is sort of like their best known Mm. sort of I think quasi-anthemic and I think the fact that 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 song with all these like sort of hallmarks of like this is very you're like this is from California (laughs) in the mid-70s like exactly you can place it pretty you know by some of its musical hallmarks but the thing is a lot of their other work and especially when you hear the production on it it has a timelessness to it, and and so and their work is, uh, you know, a sort of anthology reissue is available on most mm-hmm. on most streaming platforms. Uh, mm-hmm. But that a lot of their other work, you're like, it's kind of for me timeless in the same way that like T Rex is, yeah. where you're mm-hmm. like, some of this was so far ahead of the game that we're still catching up. But that because. You know, they're making records at Abbey Road. There's also kind of such a purity to it that, like, mm. you can't date the production. And you're like, when is this band from? Yeah, A lot of their other work is timeless in a way that Charity Ball is, like, c- kind of not, you know? Sure. I mean, you, can, you know exactly where it's from. But that was one of the things that felt like such a revelation when I started to get, get into their discography is that that timelessness that some of the greatest music from the 70s you're like oh we were we were just figuring this out still in like the 90s what you were doing in 1973 uh, huh? you know
1: i feel like i've got more listening to do not only listening, I can't recommend enough that everyone go watch clips of Fanny on YouTube, especially for me, this performance of Ain't That Peculiar, where when you, when you see them live, you get not only their sound, but their dynamic. They're having fun. They're like interacting with one
0: another. It's really a breath of fresh air. And, and they the were me- like 20. It's unreal. It's yeah. crazy. But, but Nate, isn't rock and roll supposed to be extremely serious and not fun? <laughs> well, you're absolutely right. Let's <laughs> let's listen to um, a bit of
1: that recording, which I think gets at this this quality you're talking about, Jessica. There's this is a cover of a Motown Marvin Gaye classic, and here you really hear them like keeping that the the original spunk and shuffle of of, of the 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 Marvin Gaye recording, but also adding this like kind of indefinable quality that's that's totally their own. I like those shakers, me too. What? <laughs> oh, my God.
2: It's like, once I found out that they were very much like contemporaries of Lil yeah. Feet, I was like, oh, this makes like way more sense. Hmm. Like that they're like, their they're proverbial tight bros are yeah. baby Bonnie Rate and <laughs> Lil <laughs> Feet is yeah. like, oh yeah, no, yeah. got it. Okay, Funny,
0: yeah. cool. And you're right about the production. There's stuff in there where it's like, oh yeah, that, that feels entirely contemporary. Yeah. So one
1: more question about Fanny before we move on to another Lost Note. How would music history look different were fanny a part of it
2: so lots of times when we talk about i'm doing air quotes women in rock Mm -hmm. the point of origin is you know it's really subjective there's people who like joan jett is the Mm -hmm. beginning of this and then there's people who like Oh, but Grace Slick. Oh, but Janis Joplin. Oh, but Joni Mitchell. And and there's all these different sort of origin points. Um, you know, Fanny were the first all-female band signed to a major label. You know, there was other bands that were signed around that period, and, you know, some, I mean, basically all of them relegated to obscurity. But if we knew that better, I think we would see less of this continual, like kind of sliding on like, oh, where does women in rock begin? I mean, you read you read any Barney Hoskins LA rock history, you read this, you read that. And some of these women who were really pioneering people in that space, people who were alongside the folks that we consider to be the vanguard they're not there. And so I think about just in my own case, what would it be if I had read in these histories at this time? Something that I could say, ah, there, this is where it begins, this thing that I feel so connected to, so part of so much of my work has been about about you know, sort of finding this lineage and sort of braiding myself into it. Mm-hmm you know, a feminist history within rock because so much of it has been erased.
0: Shout out to AstroPro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside. You get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Fox Creative.
2: This is advertiser content from 26.2 Team Milk and their new docu series Running Sucks. Is running the worst? Yeah. Do you love it? Do you hate it? I hate it so much. I hate it so freaking much. That you're a real runner now! I hate it. <laughs>
1: I love that, you know, it it makes me think that this is not just about sort of writing the historical record and for some objective clarity, but in terms of how people like yourself, like us, like people like young people coming up in the music world, the under uh, situate themselves within that, within that history. I like that. So with that in mind, I want to move to another uh, perhaps forgotten uh, track. And this is by a band that was also new to me. So this has been a really fun experience. This is The Freeze and their song, I Hate Tourists. I (laughs)
0: hate
2: tourists.
1: The guy in front from Michigan is slowing down to let her in. With her gone, I can't see my load, so I fucking run him off the road. Because I hate tourists, tourists suck. It's only their daughters, I want to fuck. There's an a that I don't hate, so get the hell out of my
2: state. Oh. One of my favorite things about this song is that these two kids who are like maybe 10th grade <laughs> feel so much, and they're on, they live on Cape Cod. Yeah. That they feel so much ownership over, and they say, my state. Yeah. Like, get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and to me, that like the pure teenagerness of like,
1: totally the,
2: the ownership they feel over Cape Cod is like kind of, I mean, there's so many things about that song, but that's, for some reason, the point where I'm like, yeah. this is fucking ridiculous.
0: As, as someone who grew up as a local in a New England summer beach town, I feel <laughs> This resonates? Yeah, I know. Yeah, so? yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, you get it. Oh, you don't, you don't understand me. You're not here for the winter. <laughs> so this is, you've already
1: given us some some great intel about the freeze. There are uh, some, some youths from the Cape, uh, circa late 70s. And why why their inclusion in your uh, in your Lost Notes roster this season?
2: So Rob Rosenthal, the guitarist for the founding guitarist for the Freeze, nice. He is now well known as a a teacher of radio. He's a producer himself, mm. and. A lot of the people who are podcasters and uh, NPR station workers across this country uh, learned how to do radio from Rob.
1: Oh no! But way. he
2: started out in the freeze, and he pitched us this idea. Came really f- kind of fully formed. Of you know, he left the freeze when he was, you know, maybe just going off to college. He's still mm-hmm. pretty young. At the time, they were. a a known quantity. I think he says in the piece they were like a third tier American punk band. (laughs) Um, And now at the ripe old age of 50 or something, was trying to reconcile some of those lyrics Mm -hmm. in I Hate Tourists. And really he's done a lot of just thinking about and mulling and considering the ways that the punk scene he was part of and the music that he was part of making and writing contributed to, uh, you know, an era of ambient sexism and ambient misogyny Mm. within punk rock at the tail end of the Mm. 70s. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And so it's a piece about him returning to that time and space to trying to look with very clear eyes and listen to the music they made and, and reconcile it, but also reconcile it with his high school best friend, He's taken a very different path in life, and is still in his fifties in the freeze, no fronting way. the freeze. I don't want to give it away, but yeah, I mean, yeah. it really starts. The piece sort of starts in one place of being like something that's very relatable. I did something as a teenager that, at the time, I didn't grasp mm. that maybe this was a totally shitty thing to do. Mm. Wow. Mm. <laughs> then you sort of dawn with that consciousness and kind of like ugh, ugh you know and cringe and carry it around with you and he goes back to his friend who's like still in this band and is like let's kind of like let's talk about it let's hash this out and and they've had really different lives mm. and the first time i heard it i it got really choked up but the, i don't i don't want to give it away but you uh-huh. know i really think about um there was a jeff tweedy interview from a few years ago where he talked about being in how being in rock bands is one of the sort of sanctioned ways for men to be really like emotionally intimate with each other. Hmm. And I feel like this piece, Hmm. this episode that we did that started the season of Lost Notes really kind of showcases that. It's tender. (laughs) It's tender. And then there's, (laughs) you know, as much as people are like, I don't want to listen to two 50-something-year-old guys in a punk band having their like, you know, me too. Self-reckoning. Right. It, it, you go into it thinking that's what's going to yeah. happen. And it's something much more complicated than some sort of oafish teenage mea culpas.
1: Wow. That's a good – pit. <laughs> your, your word. people are on the edge of their seat right now. At least <laughs> I am. <laughs> that's a good. You're, sell, you're selling this well, Jessica. I, mean, but I, I
2: think I – th- so I did this event with Hanif Abdurakib last night. And one of the last questions we got during the Q&A was – Someone asking us, you know, you both have written really sort of different pieces regarding uh, emo and (laughs) emo bands. And it's a scene that I wrote a long piece about exiting and feeling very alienated from 15 years ago. And Hanif said something really interesting in his response that was more or less like saying nostalgia without interrogation of that time and space is useless. Mm-hmm. It's it is to be blind to be complicit to it. And and I think a lot about as someone who was reared reared themselves in punk rock I guess mm-hmm. or who came up in that scene and obviously, you know, way after the freeze but the records I was told were, you know, canon and all the bands Mm. that I was supposed to worship and all of the ideas and histories and lineages that were supposed to be, um, you know, all those sort of cultural hierarchies within punk rock. There were so many things that I just felt so fundamentally alienated from. And I had, I don't want to say I had other choices, but, Really soon after I got into punk rock, I found out about Riot Grrrl, which was just a, just a happening right then. And, and I feel so grateful for that and grateful for the framework that it gave me as a music fan. Um, and that there were also things that were antidotes to, as Rob calls in the piece, you know, the ambient sexism of, of so much of that music that was just anti-conformity and, You know, being caustic, and sometimes that was, you know, a lot of brutalized women in these songs and, you know, murderous, jealous boyfriends. And I mean, granted, you know, that's not that different than, you know, murder ballads or, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of these other things that are just inherited song forms Mm -hmm. as that go way beyond the history of recorded music, as, you know, you can speak to. So for me, that, that, that piece and hearing people sort of reconcile um, some of that was also just really powerful for me too, as someone who grew up with, with so much of that.
0: I feel like you've just, <laughs> I've just gone through an entire transformation from when <laughs> I first heard this song. Mm-hmm. And the first thing that happened to my mind was, oh, man, it's too late for me to have a teenage angsty punk rock band. That was the first thing I heard. And now, like, here we are. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm so glad I never had an angsty <laughs> punk rock band with all that. But I'm really thankful for you sharing that history.
2: Yeah. I, you know, I, as someone who has been in uh, teenage angsty punk rock bands, I really, uh, I, it's, I don't want to say it's never too late. But Thank you. I think... <laughs> I think you should just go for it,
0: and there's it's ways just, to do it responsibly. It's just about,
2: yes, you punk, punk yourself responsibly.
1: <laughs> well, this idea from Hanif Fabdorakib: no nostalgia without interrogation. I like I, that's a great. It's sort of faith without works
2: is dead, but. Yeah but more sort of for the, <laughs> for hand-wringing music nerds. Mm.
1: So Hanif is, as you mentioned earlier, like a guest on the show as well, and he's. I'm, I'm curious to, to listen and, and get a sense of, of his relationship to this uh, next song, which is The Greatest by
0: Cat Power. You know this one? Welcome back college, yeah. <laughs>
1: So this is, I mean, a powerful composition. You just have to listen to a few seconds, and already the 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 I don't know a certain emotion starts to set in. What's I'm curious. What is Hanif's take on this? Uh, the the leg talking about legacy. What is the legacy of this song to him?
2: In Hanif's piece, which is the second episode of this season, it's Hanif reading this. Open letter, you know, to Sean Marshall about seeing her during this tour, and where he was at in that time and place, and kind of digging into this notion of songs that save your life and songs that sort of teach you how to live, and you know, because it's Hanif. I mean, there's, like, no way to give, you know, for me, like, just give you, like, this cliff notes, right, right. <laughs> you know, justice to, to what he wrote. But really about hearing that record in a particular space and time in his young life where he was struggling and to see Sean Marshall during the greatest tour, which was later cut short and and she was really going through a lot of things very publicly oftentimes on stage and and people that was really a point where the sort of um that era of cat power experience was often unfinished shows and and her really being beside herself and and if you were in the right. audience really having to bear witness to that mm. but it, it, the piece also talks about you know records that teach you how to live rather than just survive and also the idea of how sometimes we think oh you know artists have put out this heavy work this thing that was like they just excavated their soul and threw it onto this record for us to hear and then we think oh they well they're transformed like as it's mm. as if it's like an exorcism mm. you know and and kind of this mythology of them coming out the other side sort of purified by it and and how we as music fans oftentimes want that uh want that tidy arc of like they're better now you know right and even the idea that that's what great artists are supposed to be and that's what great artists do
0: there's something extremely tragic in that especially to think that an album is written and recorded often long before it is released, year, years, and then toured. And so there's something even more heart-wrenching to think about this music, which came from a really hard, personal, dark, difficult place, was then sort of drawn out over years. There, mm-hmm. It's hard to imagine room for pers- personal transformation in the constant performance of that work.
2: I think particularly we see this a lot in... The legacies of women performers that um, there often times we want to only really bear witness to certain types of pain, and we want them to be sort of purified by the fire of of their demons, their darkness, mm. their addiction. You know that that um, fit within broader tropes about women in culture, obviously, and and. Uh, broader expectations because I think in a lot of ways generally we're we're still not entirely easy with the idea of women artists what and what are the the definitions the edges the boundaries mm-hmm. of that and and I think you know going back to read uh, a lot of old cat power press last year when I did a story on her I just was like God, the, just to be saddled with this, but also to have had um, what for most people are usually very private moments on stage every night, and to be sort of um, it was almost like she was sort of bound in contract with the audience, and 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 for them to bear witness to this this time where she was uh, not. Doing well and then and putting these songs out and, and the performance of these songs was like it was like it it just seemed like seeing her around then that that her work was moving through her like lava it was not a it wasn't like she was coming out the other side purified by the fire which which I think is really uh, in part what Hanif's piece bears witness to.
1: Each of these examples, Fanny. The Freeze, Cat Power, these songs are are worth recuperating, not just because they, just for the sake of it, just to be completist, just to be thorough. What I, what I get from talking with you, listening to your show, it's these pieces are important because they serve as prisms through which we better understand the music that surrounds us, the myths we tell about music, the stories we tell about music. We need that more complete picture. And I want to end this conversation by stepping back and Maybe issuing a sort of call to Charlie and myself to think about, you know, again, we're like, as I said in the very beginning, we're focused on the dominant narrative, whether that's a narrative often dictated by the top 100 charts or certainly by the by the popular press of the moment. And we tap into that and we try and offer a deeper perspective on whatever is the dominant narrative. But we're definitely, you know, part of that.
2: I think, to that end, I think that interrogation of the things that we love in a a real way is another, I mean, it is a function of loving music, is to maybe be cynical about these winner's histories Mm -hmm. that are often just handed to us and i just think i think it's such an interesting time for for music fandom and for thinking deeply about music and engaging in a lot of these bigger conversations which is part of the reason that doing this season was so was just just felt like a gift really to be part of some of these conversations because i i think a lot of people are trying to do this work and and think deeply about these things and it's not because anyone wants to go all right, who's the bad guy of 40 years ago? And mm-hmm. you're, you know, off with his head. It's certainly not that. But really, to think about who's missing from here and why. Because once you start to dig into that, you find so many stories about people being on the margins or the things that just curtailed. curtailed amazing careers because of time, place, race, class, all of these things, gender, that that you just think about. I mean, I think a lot about the sort of phantom, the the, the phantom world of what music might look and sound like Mm. if some of these people were raised up, were given due in their right time, um, were what would we what we what would we have inherited who would have been allowed to be a genius you know and how would that have shaped our canon i think about that constantly <laughs> yeah
1: well to get a glimpse of what that phantom shadow world the alternate music history you can go listen to lost notes on KCRW or wherever you get podcasts.
2: All of the places where podcasts can be got.
1: There it is. And I know you're hooked. You know, I'm I'm like, what? I, I need to know what David Bowie said about Fanny. I need to know how this conversation between the freeze went down. What did Hanif had to say about Cat Power? Jessica, thank you so much for being here.
2: Thank you so much for having me, guys. I really appreciate getting to have this conversation with you and your listeners and your dog.
1: Aggie, Aggie, do you want to say anything to the people out there?
0: Uh, he's on mic. No. <laughs> she's, she's camera shy. <laughs> Switch on Pop is produced by me, Nate Sloan. And me, Charlie Harding. We're mixed, mastered, and engineered by Brandon McFarland. Our. Community manager is Sarah Terry. Our executive producers are Nishat Karwa and Allison Rocky. We're a production of Vox Media. You
1: can find more episodes at switchedonpop.com or anywhere podcasts live. Reach out on Twitter, wherever, at switchedonpop. We'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, thanks for thanks listening. For listening.
0: Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.